Good morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Good? <laughs> we have heat again this week. Yay. Awesome. Thanks, State Theater. Let me pray for us. We'll dig in. Some, some fun stuff today. God, thank you for this time we have together. Thanks for those who have come uh, eager to hear your word and to grow from it. Uh, we ask that you would descend on us, uh, visit us, even as we go through this message. It's your words, and your words are holy. The words are special. The words are divinely inspired, and uh, they lead us to a cool place today. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would teach us, guide us, instruct us, love us. Amen. Uh, we all know that when we're out and about, uh, we are pummeled by billboards of various kinds, right? All kinds of signs everywhere. I showed you a bunch from just one Texas restaurant that's been doing this for years, uh, there's a billboard that God has displayed through the centuries on the pages of Scripture. And that billboard depicts the cross. Not a bunch of messages. It's just really one single solitary message that's driving home the point, which is that God actually loves the world, loves the people in it, and wants them to come by faith to Jesus Christ and have eternal life. We're introduced to this thought uh, as the banner billboard, Truth of God, in verses 23 and 24 of John chapter 19. Uh, there's just two verses we're going to look at today, but they're going to drive us back to take a look at kind of the past, um, provide the foundation of the message today, right? And it's because there are certain scenes that we dare not move too quickly through, and I think this is one of them. So we're just going to cover two verses today, John chapter 19, 23 and 24. It's up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Well, in these two verses, we're introduced to a thought that the cross was not some unexpected event, but that God had anticipated it throughout history. We know this because of the quote from Psalm 22 that tells us what the soldiers did was a fulfillment of a prophecy declared all the way back in the Old Testament. Actually, it's a psalm written by King David. Someone once said, no other religion has at its heart the humiliation of its God. I would only add to that by saying that no other religion has anticipated in advance the humiliation of its God and made that the very focal point of all that it's about. We're introduced to that thought here. I use this picture on the screen as an illustration but it's not the one I wanted to talk about. I couldn't find the one I wanted to talk about. I saw a painting years ago. I don't, I don't recall exactly where I saw it. It was either in Europe or some probably maybe in Latin America. It's a painting of Jesus standing in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. He is an adult by this time. He has laid down his tools in the shop. He's facing a window through which either late afternoon or early evening sunlight is filtering through the picture. He's looking upwards towards heaven with his hands raised, the sunlight coming through the window, hitting him, and casting a shadow on the wall behind him 
in the carpenter shop. And if you look at the shadow, it looks like the perfect form of a cross and a man hanging on it. The point of the painting is that the shadow of the cross was cast throughout the very life of Christ. The question is, how far back does this shadow go? How deep and how long does that shadow run? I want to explore that with you today. So we look now at these two verses. We discover that the soldiers divided Jesus' garments. Why did they do that? Why does John even write about it? Well, it was a Roman custom, in fact, a Roman law. Before a man was executed, by way of crucifixion, he would be stripped completely naked. And the garments of the prisoner would become the property of the soldiers who crucified him. It was the ultimate and final humiliation. The executioners would divide them as their spoil. Now, how many soldiers were there? We mentioned it in earlier messages. There were four soldiers who were executioners that surrounded Jesus on the way to the cross. And these four were given the name Quaternion, a squad of four soldiers. And they were led by a centurion who carried a placard that listed the crimes of the prisoners about to be executed. But the average Jewish male wore five pieces of clothing, an outer robe, below that a tunic, a belt, sandals, and a turban or some kind of head cover. So there are four soldiers slash executioners and five pieces of clothing. So each soldier got one piece. The fifth piece, the tunic, they decided to throw dice for or cast lots for. Look, these soldiers were hardened men. They had to be. They fought wars. They quelled riots. They've killed many people like they were killing Jesus at this point. You've got to be a pretty hardened individual to not only take a dying man's possessions, but before he's dead, to gamble for them at the feet of the cross. So that's where Jesus can actually watch them. But the point of including these two verses isn't just to speak of human hatred and revulsion, but rather divine anticipation. That's why John says, all of this was done to fulfill the scripture, which just happens to be Psalm 22, verse 18. What John is showing us is that this cross cast a long shadow all the way back to David, who wrote about it. And when God inspired him to write it, I'm not sure that David even understood what it meant. He could have. I just don't know for sure. Either way, Psalm 22 is a fairly amazing scripture. When David penned Psalm 22, he knew nothing about crucifixion. It had not been invented yet. But in vivid detail, in Psalm 22, David writes about the exhaustion, the physical torment, the, natural, the unnatural position of the body during crucifixion, bones being pulled out of sockets, raging thirst, nails going through hands and feet. All of these are incredible details that were known only really at this point in the mind of God, who then revealed them to David. That's what makes John mention this. So today I want to take a journey back with you based on these two verses. Let's just see how far back the shadow goes, and I'm going to walk with you from the cross backward in time. First of all, we know this. Jesus himself predicted his own death. I just want you to imagine what that would be like. To live knowing exactly when you were going to die and exactly how you were going to die. Imagine what that would be like to live with that kind of knowledge. On six different occasions in the Gospel of Matthew, 
Jesus predicted his death three more times in the Gospel of Mark. And then you have Luke and John. It's all recorded. I'm going to take you just to a few places today. And we'll start with Matthew chapter 16. It's a famous setting. Jesus asks his disciples two questions. Peter gets an A on the test. The questions are, who do men say that I am? And there's some answers to that. The second question is to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I think after Peter gets applauded, really, for answering the question correctly, I think he feels the freedom to speak out as if he, as if he was shy ever, right? Uh, but he passed the test, so he's, got, he's, got, he's kind of emboldened. But it doesn't go too well for him in the second round. In verse 21 of that chapter, we get this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Again, I think Peter just felt, you know, emboldened to speak up. We'll make sure this doesn't happen. We're going to make sure this does not happen to you. Not going to happen. He's not expecting Jesus' response, which is this. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oops. Ouch. There were more times Jesus indicated that he was going to, uh, what was going to happen to him. Matthew 17, after Jesus' transfiguration after Jesus heals a boy from demonic possession, they end up in Galilee. And Jesus shares then with the disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. See, death was Jesus' constant companion. He knew how. He knew when. He knew where. And he told them. He predicted his own death the shadow of the cross fell upon his path every single day. Again, just imagine what that would be like. If you knew when and where and how you would die, would you live differently? Yeah, you would a little bit, right? You would live a very focused life, a very intentional life. And that's important to realize because there's a lot of scriptures that won't make a lot of sense to you unless you realize what Jesus was going through. For example, in John 7, it says this, they, the rulers, sought to take Jesus. But his hour had not yet come. The wind had not arrived. Right? So they didn't take him. But when the hour did come, Jesus fully embraces it. John begins chapter 13 with this. And Jesus, knowing that the hour had come for him to depart out of this world and go to the Father, girded himself with a towel and started washing his disciples' feet. Or John 17, as part of Jesus' prayer. Father, the hour has come to glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Or John 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So we're dealing with somebody who predicted his own death, knew exactly when, where, how, and lived with that constant knowledge. That was his focus. And because that was his focus, Jesus regarded any suggestion to move him away from that focus as being something from Satan. That's why he said what he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's like Jesus was thinking, hey, you know what? I think I've heard that voice before coming from Peter. 
I know where that voice is coming from. It's from Satan. Why would he say that? Well, it was Satan who suggested basically the same thing while tempting Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and all the glory of it if he would just bow down and worship Satan. Satan tried to derail him from the cross and the suffering. And Jesus simply said, away with you, Satan. I think Satan suspected something was afoot. Something was up with this cross thing. I just don't think he realized how far-reaching those consequences would be for him, consequences that ultimately is going to lead to his total and utter defeat. So let's go back a little further in time. Not only did Jesus predict his death, Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, predicted his death. He was called John the Baptist because he called people to repent and be baptized. There wasn't a Baptist denomination going around at the time, right? Just in case you're wondering about that. John the Baptist was a prophet that God used to announce the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. What's interesting to me is this. When John the Baptist began out in the wilderness, he had a pretty singular message. Repent, you you scuzzbags. Repent and be baptized. John the Baptist believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But initially, it seems that John the Baptist saw Jesus as a living judge, not a dying savior. Like most Jewish people, He anticipated the Messiah is going to come in gloriously, right? Throw out the Romans, set up his kingdom. Initially, I don't think he expected the Messiah to die. But if you were to harmonize all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and provide a kind of a chronological picture, this is how it kind of goes down. Jesus comes down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. After he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for about six weeks, 40 days. After the temptation by Satan, he comes back to the Jordan River and sees John the Baptist again a second time. So here's John the Baptist. Down at the Jordan River, he's yelling out, repent, repent, repent. When the religious leaders come up, oh man, he, he's, he is awesome towards them, right? He denounces them. He talks about how the Messiah is going to have a winnowing fan in his hands and will thoroughly purge the threshing floor. He's going to gather the grain into his barn, but he's going to burn up the chaff, i.e. the religious leaders, with unquenchable fire. Now, that's a fire and brimstone message. And that's going to be accurate for Jesus at his second coming, but not the first. But John the Baptist somehow changes his message when things happen. Three things happen. Number one, Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized. Remember John's reaction? He goes, Lord, Lord, this is This is totally wrong. I should not be doing this. You should be baptizing me. You have nothing to be baptized for. But now he realizes in Jesus' baptism that Jesus has not come to yell and scream at sinners, but to actually identify with them. Second thing that happens is that as he's baptizing Jesus, the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God comes down like what? Anybody know? Dove, thank you. Yeah, a dove. Ever wonder why a dove? Why a dove? Look at it from John the Baptist's perspective. John the Baptist was the son of a Jewish priest, and he would immediately recognize the dove as an animal of sacrifice, right? The lamb was the traditional sacrifice, but if you could not afford a lamb, if you were the poorest of the poor, you would just bring a dove. So first, Jesus gets baptized, identifies with sinners. Second, a dove shows up. It tips John the Baptist off that maybe a sacrifice here is somehow involved. 
The third thing is that Jesus goes away for six weeks, comes back. And the second time when John sees him, he says something very different. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What has happened between repent and be baptized, you scumbags, and, you know, denouncing sinners and and the leaders to behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world? Well, six weeks happened. I don't know for sure, but I suspect that during those six weeks, John went back to the scrolls of Isaiah from which he has been taking his cues. He'd been quoting Isaiah all the way through his ministry. And I think he started reading some of the other passages in Isaiah, like Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, which says basically the lamb was, the Messiah was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And somehow he managed to connect the dots and it clicked. So as Jesus comes back, he introduces Jesus this way. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And in that statement, he's announcing that a sacrifice is coming. He's predicting the death, the cross of Christ. And he's the Lamb of God, the animal of sacrifice, whose blood will take away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist highlights the coming death of Jesus. Let's go back a little further. At the birth of Christ, our visitors at the birth also predicted the cross. Now, Jesus had a very unusual birth, not just the fact that he was virgin-born, but also the things that were happening around him at the time. I don't know about you, but when I was born, nothing remarkable happened, as far as I could tell. I did a little digging to find out, uh, when I was born on 5 March, a long time ago, uh, what was going on? Only three things stand out. One, the President of the United States was Harry Truman. Girls were wearing poodle skirts. And the economy was finally starting to return to normal after World War II. That's what was going on. You know, not, not much. But check out the birth of Jesus. And it's a whole different scene. There's angelic visitors. The sky's been lit up to allow the wise men from the east to find the birthplace or the house where Jesus is now residing. But the language of these visitors is all predictive of a sacrifice, of the death of Christ. For example, what did the angel say to Joseph after he found that Mary was pregnant? The angel said, okay, I gotta, you don't have to worry about calling a name. You don't have to worry about making up a name. I got a name for you. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. When the angel announced to the Bethlehem shepherds in, uh, outside of Bethlehem, right, they, here's, here's what they heard. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. All of that language is predictive of someone who's going to come as a sacrifice, a savior, and pray for sin. Right? Three gifts brought by the wise men. What were they? Gold. Okay, okay, gold. Gift for the, fitting for a king. Frankincense. Interesting. What a priest would use in sacrifices. And myrrh, which is a little bit strange. Myrrh was a gummy substance that hardened and it only gave off a beautiful scent when it was crushed. Incidentally, myrrh was used in the ancient world to embalm the dead. It was an embalming kind of fluid. I'm pretty sure that if you were a new mom and you just had a baby and someone gave you, for the baby, a gift of embalming fluid, you're probably not going to be too excited about that, right? But all of that was predictive, right? Why myrrh? When Jesus died, he was wrapped with myrrh, the Bible says. Myrrh was a substance placed around the dead person in order to offset the stench of decay. But as I mentioned to you, it only gave off a scent when it was crushed, why did I, what did Isaiah say concerning Jesus? He said this. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All of this was predictive. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph go to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate their son to God. As they're there, there's an old gazer named Simeon who was uh, told by the Holy Spirit, he's an old old guy, that he wouldn't die until he actually laid eyes on the Messiah. When he takes baby Jesus in his arms, he knows right away that this is the Messiah. And he prays this to God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Okay, I'm ready to die. Finally, I can go die. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Then, after praying, he turns and says this to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, based on who's going to believe him and who's not, right? And a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We'll read more next week as Mary stands at the foot of the cross. Her heart is broken because her son is giving his life. But Jesus predicted the cross. His forerunner predicted the cross, John the Baptist. The visitors of Jesus at his birth predicted the cross. I don't know what plans you have for your kids. Most every parent has some plans. Maybe my son or daughter will grow up to do this or be that. But whatever plans you have, your ultimate plan, right, is that they live that they live well, that they live long and happy lives. We've got to grasp this whole reason for Jesus' birth was actually his death. Okay, let's stop and go back a little bit further in time. Back to the prophets in the Old Testament because they also predicted the death of Christ. I don't know if you know this, but there are about 330 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament uh, predicting who who he would be, what he would be like. These 330 covered things like where he would be born, what tribe he would be from, where he would grow up, including what he would do and details about his death. Pretty amazing. The Jewish people had always anticipated there would be a coming Messiah. Uh, One of their daily prayers was, I believe, in the coming of Messiah. And even though that prayer prayer also said, yea, I will wait every coming day, but what they were really waiting for, like John the Baptist and most everybody else, pretty much the disciples too at that time, is that Israel was going to get a Messiah, a conquering Messiah, not a dying Messiah, not a dying Savior. However, the Old Testament predicted the suffering and death of the Messiah. I cannot cover all the passages unless, of course, you guys want to be here till like tomorrow night, okay? But so just to highlight, let me take you to one little episode in Luke 24. This occurs after the death of Christ and after his resurrection. He's alive again. There are two followers of Jesus walking along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, disciples of Jesus, and they're talking. Seemingly out of nowhere, because he just appeared out of nowhere, Jesus joins them on that walk. Here's what happens. And their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So he was with them, but he didn't, they didn't see who he was. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. They stopped walking. Still stunned. They looking sad. 
Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem, because that's where they're coming from, Jerusalem, who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? Like he doesn't know, right? Like he doesn't know, he, he's just playing dumb. He wants them to tell him what things. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, Jesus has now heard the things that he asked from them, right? So Jesus responds to them this way. Listen to this. Oh, foolish ones, how and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And I don't know about you, but if ever there were a conversation, that's the one I wish had been recorded. It's the one alluded to in verse 27. The first Bible study that Jesus gave after he rose from the dead was an expositional, prophetic Bible study scouring the Old Testament passages concerning Jesus himself and what he would suffer. Imagine he took them back to Genesis 22, talked about Abraham and Isaac like we mentioned last week. Imagine he took them to Numbers 21, where the snakes were biting all the people because of their disobedience. And God uh, responded to Moses' prayer, that telling them to get a, get a, get a stake, put, a, put a, a bronze serpent on it, lift it up, and tell the people, oh, just look at this snake by faith and they'll be healed. And Jesus refers to that himself, saying that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. I'm sure he took them to Isaiah 52 and 53, passages so clear regarding the suffering of the Messiah that would come. And I'm sure he took them to Psalm 22, the very psalm we started with in our reading today. As we go, Psalm 22 opens and closes with two sayings that Jesus uttered while on the cross, including... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these two disciples eventually have their eyes opened and recognize that it's Jesus they're talking to. And immediately Jesus disappears just as easily as he, as he came. So here's the deal. These soldiers were throwing the dice, casting lots, gambling for Jesus' clothes, as hardened as they were, as self-serving as they were. It was interesting to me that at the end of all this, it was the centurion who led them, the four soldiers who would actually crucify Jesus. He declared this after Jesus' death. Surely this man was the son of God. What's important to understand is that God had anticipated all of that and inspired David to write about it in detail in Psalm 22. That's how far back the shadow goes. Jesus predicted it. 
John the Baptist predicted it. The visitors that birth predicted it. The prophets have predicted it. Now I'm going to take you to one final place, all the way back and see how far that shadow goes and where it started. And for that, it might surprise you. We're going to go to Revelation 11, or Revelation 13. No, it sounds weird. Why aren't we going back to the beginning of Exodus or Genesis or something? Stay tuned for a couple of minutes. I'll warn you up front. Revelation 13 is not really primarily about Jesus Christ, but about some guy referred to as the Antichrist. All right? That said, Jesus is mentioned here. The Antichrist will show up in the future and convince the world, much of the world, to worship him because he promises to solve all the world's problems. And he's going to attract a lot of attention and allegiance. He turns out to be a temporary ruler, far different from the eternal ruler Jesus is going to be. But these two rulers are kind of compared. So if we ask the question, how long does the shadow of the cross fall? Well, it started before David. It started before Abraham and Isaac. It goes all the way back, in fact, goes back to before creation itself. The cross was in the mind of God before creation even happened. So in this passage, the word it refers to the Antichrist, Revelation 13. Also it, the Antichrist, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it, the Antichrist, over every tribe and people and language and nation. And listen very carefully to this next part. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So, before Jesus ever left heaven to come to this earth, to take on a body of flesh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had all gotten together and agreed, this is how this is going to go down. It's not like Jesus, uh, you know, is about to leave heaven, come into the womb of a virgin, and God the Father sort of sneaks us in at the last second. Oh, before you go, I just need you to know something I neglected to tell you earlier all through all time, right? You're going to go across. You're going to go to a cross to kind of finish this thing off. No, that wasn't sprung on him. It was known and agreed upon by the Trinity before the foundation of the world was ever laid. One of the disciples, Peter, wrote this in 1 Peter, talking about to Christians. He says, you guys, you guys as Christians, were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then pay attention to what comes next. He was the foreknown or ordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, that is, he became visible to us in these last times when he became uh, in human form. For the sake of you, it, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Jesus' role as the Savior of the world was determined, established well before Genesis 1-1, when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the shadow of the cross was in the mind and heart of the Godhead who shared that with Abraham and the patriarchs and all the visitors at the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus predicted it himself, and here we read in John 19, just as David predicted and the other prophets predicted, it all happened. Same God who said, let us make him man in our own image, knew that that image was going to be marred. It was going to become corrupted by sin. 
and would require redemption and would have to send his son to fix that. That was part of the whole equation of even, even creation itself. That's why Charles Purgeon said this. He said, I could sum up my entire, my entire theology in four words. Here are the four words. He died for me. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? Cross is always a part of God's plan. Before time as we know it began, the creation of the universe. And don't overlook this from this passage in Revelation 13. Something else happened before the foundation of the world. The names of every person who would ultimately put their faith in this coming Messiah promised in John or Genesis John 3.15, Genesis 3.15. The names of every person who would put their faith in the Messiah when he was here on earth and the names of every person who has put their faith in the Messiah since he returned with glory to the Father. All those names were written by God in a publication called the Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. This is actually mirrored by Ephesians 1.4, where Paul tells the believers in the city of Ephesus, he chose us in him. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. At the same point when God said, I'm going to send my son to redeem people, he knew that you and I, sitting here, would be born. And he chose you to become one of the believers in Jesus. He didn't force you. He didn't make you. He didn't manipulate you. He knew that he would seek you and that you would respond. And we shouldn't be surprised when we get to peer into that book of life downstream that every single person that God said he would save, he has saved. We don't know all those names now, do we? So what should we be doing? Yeah, we should be telling everybody we can about the gospel. Live like we really believe that Jesus is not only a Savior, but Lord. Live lives that testify of the greatness of God through Jesus. Knowing that God loved you before anything was created, including you. How about we celebrate that with some communion? Bring it on up as I pray us out. God, thank you for our time today. Thank you for this sort of, sort of a deep dive, deeper dive into, you know, not just the crucifixion that we're experiencing as we're teaching on, but the fact is that you knew this was coming. You planned it. You agreed to do it. How much love is that? To know all the way through human history, you were going to come and die for us. You watched us fall. You watched us sin. You watched us mess up. And you said, I'm going to die for that. I'm going to die for that. I'm going to die for him. I'm going to die for her. I'm going to die for that person. I'm going to die for that baby. I mean, it's just amazing. You had all that in your, in your mind as you created, as you spoke the word, and things began to exist. And that we already had our names written in this book before we even knew, we would, knew that, we, that it existed, that you had us in your mind way then before everything, just when it was you, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thanks for your consistency. Thanks for not only starting a plan, but completing the plan, finishing the plan, fulfilling the plan. We're here because of your love for us and your steadfast resistance to follow any other path than to provide salvation for us. Nothing deterred you. 
Lord, we thank you. And as we take communion today, we're trying to a little, little juice, a little bread to remind ourselves of your blood and your sacrifice. But man, it's, it's far deeper than just little, little tidbits. It's amazing what you've done for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And in Jesus' name, we glorify you. Amen.